we would love for you to be involved in it. Anyway, that's the shameless plug over for Alpha. I will talk about that a little bit more in a minute as well. But we are starting a new series today, and we are in the book of Ezra. So if you've got a Bible, please feel free to find Ezra. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The, the reading will come up on the screen today. Um, and so just, just to quickly, I just, I'm aware that m- many of us, maybe we weren't raised in a Christian environment, or maybe we have just new to faith. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're here because you want to explore the Christian faith. And you don't really understand the Old Testament. You just think it's, gosh, there's just loads of books there. I'm, I'm a bit unsure about it. So if you do understand it, just bear with me a moment. But if you don't, I just want to explain a couple of things to you, because I think it will help us as we look at Ezra together. So the Old Testament was written over a long period of time. It was written over almost 1,400 years. If we think back 1,400 years in the UK, imagine what the world was like then. I mean, it was a completely different environment, wasn't it? There, the, 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 there were people maybe travelling to, to, to the, the, the British Isles from other parts of Europe to populate it for the first time. I think some of it was invaded by Vikings around then. That was the time period. So that kind of sum of time is the amount of time it took from the start of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. That's a long period of time, isn't it? Things change a lot in that, in that time period. That's the first thing. Secondly, the Old, the Old Testament isn't chronological. It doesn't start at Genesis and end in Malachi, and Malachi kind of um, chronologically finishes it off. It's actually based around genres of books. And there are six types of books in the Old Testament. You've got the books of law. You've got narrative history, which Ezra is part of. You've got books of wisdom, books of poetry, books of prophecy, and books that are apocalyptic. They speak about um, eschatology, that is the, the, the end times, things that are still to come. Prophecy, the books of prophecy particularly, often link into history. And I'm going to be talking about the book of Jeremiah today whilst I speak about Ezra, just so you're aware of that. And Ezra has a, a, like a sister book to it, which is Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah are right at the end of the narrative history of Israel and Judah. Because Israel itself had been split into two nations, Judah and Israel. And to understand the context of Ezra... And we need to just retrace our steps ever so slightly to the end of two other books, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Now, if you were to read the end of 2 Chronicles, you'll find almost word for word what I'm going to read to you in a minute from Ezra. And what's happened in these two books? Well, God um, originally had, um, basically, the, the nation of Israel, God said originally, you don't have to have kings. But they said, we want a king. So God says, okay, you can have a king. But the, the kings gradually rule more and more badly. They, they don't actually want to serve God. They just want to serve themselves and their own glory. They're not all like David, who is like the archetypal best king you could possibly get. He loves Jesus. Sorry, loves God. Well, he probably loves Jesus in his heart. Doesn't know who Jesus is yet. Loves God. Loves the people. Wants to serve them. Wants to do a really good job. But then gradually, over successive generations, the kings start hating the people and hating God. They just want to rule. And so... They are becoming more and more disobedient to God's ways. And God basically uses the prophets, so I've spoken about already this morning, the prophets to speak to Israel and to speak to Judah and say, look, you need to sort your act out, otherwise there's going to be a punishment for your disobedience. But yet they carry on opposing God's ways. And what happens is, is right at the end of 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, they find the consequence of their actions before God. God allows Israel and Judah to fall into the hands of the Persians, the Assyrians. And what happens is, over a period of about 20 years, different kings over this empire force the Israelite people into enforced resettlement. 
So they take the people out of their homeland and they disperse them throughout their empire. Imagine for a second that somebody was to invade the UK today and we were then taken out of Ashford and we were forced to go and live in other parts of this other nation that, um, that had invaded us. That is what they did. And they did it for two reasons. They did it because they wanted to um, stop any sense of a revolt happening. Because obviously if we were all together, Ashford crew... Yeah, living in the same place somewhere, we could say, come on, let's all rise up together. Let's start a rebellion against our overlords and overthrow them. So what they did is they dispersed people throughout their empire. And hopefully over time, people gradually became less and less Israelite and more and more Persian, more and more Assyrian. So that was the first thing. Secondly, what they did is they took the best and brightest minds and they used them for the empire. So Daniel, the book of Daniel, which was quoted, I think, already this morning, if you read Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is part of this exile... And he is used because he's gifted. And he gets used to advance this other empire. Now, this kind of behavior, just so you know, didn't just happen then. It actually happens now. And if you were to read the news stories over the last year, you would see that actually over 900,000 people, it said, have been taken out, forced out of eastern Ukraine and moved into parts of Russia. This is enforced resettlement. So it's not just something that we see in history. We see dictators doing the same thing today. And we find that at the start of the book of Ezra, there's actually now 70 years have passed between them being taken into this enforced slavery and when they were originally living where they were before. 70 years have been passed. And we know, though, that this exile wasn't just political, as is the case with Ukraine, but it was God-ordained. God had allowed this to happen to his people. And he had allowed his people to be exiled because they were disobedient to him. And they're not in in a foreign land just because of a dictator. This is about the consequences of ongoing rebellion against God. See, God's a good God. If you say, God, I don't want anything to do with you, he says, okay, then. God, I want to follow my own ways. Okay, then you go and follow your own ways. But that means that you can't, you and I can't be in the same, we can't be in the same zone as each other. You're going to have to go somewhere else. God separates those from him who do not want to follow his ways. You know, that can be the same for you and I today. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible actually says that you are separated from God because the things that you do that God doesn't do, that's what's called sin, okay? And that separates us from God. And without Jesus, we don't have the ability for a relationship with him. I wonder whether that's you this morning. Or maybe you've come to find out about faith. Maybe you've been here a while and you're finding out about faith. And perhaps you've got loads of questions that you've got. And so Alpha is just that brilliant opportunity to ask those questions, as I've already said. You see, you and I were made for a relationship. We were made for a relationship with God. And when we don't have that, We might not even realise it at a surface level, but subconsciously there is a yearning in us that we just cannot seem to satisfy. Our culture tells us to go and then satisfy that yearning in loads of different places and environments, but never God. When you place your faith in Jesus, he sends his spirit to come to dwell within you. Jesus says in John that that if if we abide in God, he comes to make his home in us. We become a dwelling place for the presence of God. And this is the amazing news of the gospel of Jesus. But this, this isn't the case for the Israelites. You see, they're under the old covenant. And under their covenant, their promise with God, his presence didn't dwell within them by his spirit, because that's a work that can only be achieved because of what Jesus has done. His presence dwelt in a specific location in Jerusalem. So as we start Ezra, 
The temple in Jerusalem is in rack and ruins. It's been left for 70 years to rot. And the Jewish community is in exile in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness of their ancestors. The very place of encounter where God meets his people has just been left. It's been left to to ruin. However, they also know some promises that have been made over them. That that God is going to promise to bring them back to the land of Judah, back to Jerusalem, and restore his blessing to them if they return to him. And this is where Ezra starts. So we're going to read verses 1 to 4 together, um, and I want to pull some things out of this this morning. So what happens is, at the start of this book, we hear that there is a new king on the throne in Persia, and his name is Cyrus. Now, he is not related to Miley, okay, or Billy Ray. You could say this starts like a wrecking ball. Um, it's a really bad joke. I just thought I'd try it out. I won't do that in the second meeting because none of you laughed. Anyway, so Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia, and, it's his, and, he's, and he's a newbie on the throne. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, that's a prophet, book of Jeremiah, we'll get to that in a bit, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So here we have this new king, Cyrus, and he decides to let the people of Judah return to their homeland, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And if they don't want to return, they have to give in to it. So look, this is kind of like an interesting thing. From, from a surface level, it almost sounds like he believes in Yahweh. He, when it says Lord, that's, that's translated from Yahweh, which is God's name in the Old Testament. It almost sounds like he believes in God, right? Yet we know from Isaiah, who's another prophet, that he doth, doesn't believe in God. He doesn't know God. While he invokes Yahweh's name, he's got information about God. He actually doesn't know God. And we also know from a piece of archaeology called the Cyrus Cylinder uh, that, that is in the British Museum that he did this kind of thing with other people groups. In fact, he also claims to worship a God called Marduk. Cyrus' apparent belief in God is cynical and it's politically motivated. His decision to allow the people home has been brought on by wanting to shore up his likability factor within his empire. He thinks, well, if I, it's my first year of my reign and rule, I'll give the people what they want. We're going to experience this in the next 12 months before the next general election. The politicians are going to promise us all sorts of things, some of which they will deliver on and some of which they won't deliver on. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get us to like them. It's exactly what Cyrus is doing here. He's a great politician and he worships the God that best suits the moment he's in. Yet there is this, I I find it wonderful, the irony that exists within this. While Cyrus is purposefully only using God to advance his own name and purpose, the exact opposite is actually happening. Cyrus is actually being used by God for God to advance his own purposes. And this is my first point, and it's really simple. God is advancing his purposes. Now, it might sound really simple, But I think you need to be reminded that at the heart of everything is God's purpose. 
Perhaps too often we can become like Cyrus. We convince ourselves that if we pay lip service to God, it will advance our own goals and our own aims in life. Now, our culture is built on, built on the principle or the foundation of what's called the therapeutic self. So in layman's, in everyday language, the, the, this means this, that life is all about ensuring your own personal happiness. That's The whole of life is all about you being personally happy. So everything exists within the framework of our culture around that principle that you need to become personally happy. And if we fall into the, tra the trap of adopting a mentality like Cyrus, we can end up thinking that God is there simply to ensure our own personal happiness. And if we think that way, what happens is that we can become more and more frustrated with God when he doesn't do what we tell him to. Or we treat church as a place that serves our personal needs. Or we assume that God is going to do all the work for us. Well, God, I, I tried to do this or I tried to do that, but you didn't help me, so I gave up. But you see, the thing is, we don't live in a reality that we make for ourselves. We live in a reality that God has made. We live in his reality, not our reality. Does that make sense? Perhaps the Cyrus mentality is best exemplified by the constant misuse in Western Christianity of Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, I'm not selecting a random text here and just having a go about it. I'm actually telling you the text that this prophecy that is read about in Ezra 1, verse 1 is based on. This is where it's from. This verse, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. But many of us have this verse stuck on our fridge or in our Bible or somebody's given it to us because we're going for a rough season and we think, yeah, I know the plans God has for me, declares the Lord. And when we read it, we take it to mean that in all our endeavours, God is going to give us success. God's actually just about our plans and our purposes. If we do that, we actually read it like Cyrus. We believe that life is all about God helping us to fulfil our dreams and our ambitions. And when this doesn't happen, we can become frustrated. In fact, some of us will leave the faith over it. Because we think, what's the point in Christianity? He never does what I tell him to. But this is totally what, not what this verse is actually saying. In order to understand Jeremiah 29, verse 11, you need to understand the context of it. So let's just read it together. Verses 10 to 14. I'm really sorry if this burst your bubble this morning, but this is just... This is the reality of what these verses actually mean. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God says that the Israelites, says the, to the Israelites, as they are carried away into exile, into enforced relocation, that there will be a time when he will again invite them to come and partner with him in his purposes. And as they accept the invitation, they will encounter God's hand of blessing over them as a nation. As they once again turn their attention towards him and away from worthless idols, they will encounter God. They will find him. And as they do, they will find a hope and a future. Not a hope and a future of their own making, but a hope and a future of God's making. 
And as they seek him with all of their heart, they will flourish. So God reveals himself in Jeremiah 29 and then the fulfillment of this prophecy as the one who doesn't break promises and the one who will fulfill his purposes. And so my second point is this. You and I flourish in life. We prosper not when we do what we want to do, but when we take part in his purposes. We prosper, we flourish when we take part in the purposes of God. You see, if we think like Cyrus, we think God is a side character in our story. If we read Jeremiah 29, 11 without any sort of context to it, we can end up being mistaken into thinking that we are at the center and God is there just to facilitate. Yet we know that God is at the center. We know that everything orbits around God's will. He is both at the middle and the margin at the same time. Everything belongs to him. It's ultimately about God's. Failure to understand that leads to what I determined like a coup of the heart. You overthrow God in your life and you become the person who sits on the throne of your life. And you know what? This isn't something that we just end up doing. This is something that Western Christianity and Western culture has now achieved. We have removed God from life. You see, you and I, we live in a culture and an environment that is constantly bombarding us with the message that the individual matters most. And the most sacred thing there is, is to be authentic to who you are. You will have heard that message multiple times this week. Yet no matter how much we hear that message, inside of us, as it says in Ecclesiastes, God has placed eternity as a longing in your heart. And you'll find that there is, it becomes in conflict. It, doesn't, it feels incongruous to the truth that maybe, perhaps, just maybe, there is somebody else actually on the throne. You see, and God's purpose for you is not just to make you feel happy or better about yourself. That's not God's purpose. God's ultimate purpose is this, to bring glory to himself. That's what, he, that's what he's here for. It says this in Habakkuk 2 verse 14, another prophet. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. How is God achieving that purpose? Well, God is achieving that purpose through the glorification of his son Jesus... By the worship of his people, that is the church. His purpose is that all creation encounters the presence and the rule and the reign of his son Jesus. He, his, his core aim, his chief aim, his purpose is to glorify the son. The relationship that humans had with God in Eden was one where we walked with God. Yet our sin, our rebellion against God led to the consequences we were separated from him. Just as the Israelites were, they went into exile. Yet in Christ, you and I have been able to draw near again to God. We have where we were once separated, we are now no longer aliens. We are called children of the Most High God. Just as God promised the Israelites that they would prosper when they dedicated themselves to being a people of God's presence, you and I don't flourish when we get our own way. We flourish when we give our lives over to his purposes for us. As we engage in that purpose, as we align ourselves with his will, we not only find uh, flourishing, but we find our own purpose. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. The chief end of humankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were designed. You were made. Not to get rich and have a good relationship with somebody. You weren't designed just to have a family. You weren't designed just to have a good job, a good career. That is not what you were designed for. God has designed you before the, the creation of time. What for? To glorify him and enjoy him. That's what you were designed for. 
And all of your longings, all of your misplaced longings will never find their home until you realize that. You're invited to come and glorify God. You're invited to know him, to experience him. The book of Ezra is all about a people returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to reestablish a place where God dwells with his people. And we believe that God, we as a leadership team, believe that God is calling us as a church to be a place, to be a people where the thing that we do as a church, the the thing that we're marked out is, what is Gateway Church about? Well, this is what we're about. We're about being a people of his presence. Now, I've been banging on about this for a while. I have. I've spoken about it three or four times this year. Because I'm utterly convinced that God has not called us just to come up with more plans and programs. I just think they don't work. They don't work unless you know the person. They don't work unless you experience the presence of God. You know, life change doesn't happen without experiencing God. Otherwise, it's just dry works. You know, the the success, I'm now going totally off my notes, the success of Alcoholics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous, the 12-step program, one of the first things they do is is acknowledge that they are not alone, that there is a higher power. You know, the first thing that we need to realize is that God is on the throne. It's about him. It's not about us. Does that make sense to you? We believe God is calling us to be a place where we give ourselves over to him. His presence in us, his presence among us as a people is key to everything that we could or could ever do. You know, our friends at Bedford say you get a lot more done in the presence of God than you'll ever do anywhere else. This is where we find everything hinges on. This is in the Bible that in his presence there is fullness of joy. Do you not want to experience that? See, God doesn't want you just to know about him. Many of us have got caught in this kind of strange form of Christianity where we think that if we know more about God, that's enough. Well, I know Hebrew, I know Greek. Well, I know what the New Testament says in you know, John 3.16. I can quote that verse, so I know God. It's very different Knowing things about God and knowing God. It's a different thing. Let me give you, let me give you an, uh, an example of this. You see, I, I, last time out, I spoke about the distance when we had the kids in. I spoke about the distance from Earth to the moon. Now, I could find out facts all day long about the moon. I could go and study like charts about its cycles, about next time it's going to be a full moon. In fact, recently I heard on the radio it was going to be a full moon the next morning. It was like going to be this super moon. So I got up. At 6.30, I went for a run. I thought, I'm going to see the super moon. I walked outside and it was cloudy. (laughs) I could study it. I could get up every night. I could take photographs of it. But despite all of this, my knowledge would be completely worthless compared to the person who's actually stood on the surface of the moon. Charlie Duke, one of the pilots on the Apollo 16 mission, said this about walking on the moon. See, I could give you facts, but I could never sum up what he said. I'd sum it up with wonder, awe, excitement, and adventure. It's the kind of thing you get when you encounter the presence of God. You're in a place that Buzz Aldrin, not like you, said was a magnificent desolation. It was the most beautiful terrain I had ever seen. Nothing I could ever learn about the moon would ever come close to that. Does that make sense? You know, we can have a knowledge of God, but that doesn't mean we know God. You're not called from darkness to light. You're not called from exile and separation from God into community with God just to know information about him. You're invited to encounter him, to know him, to experience him. We want to be a people who encounter his presence and who lead others into encountering his presence. 
We want every meeting, every space, every place that we inhabit to be a place where we are confident in knowing the Holy Spirit's presence with us. Why? Because that's what God's designed us for. You know, many of the Israelites, because this had been 70 years, right? Many of the Israelites in Babylon had grown accustomed to their new culture. In fact, probably most of that generation had died out. They'd been, ta- you know, if I, if I went into exile as a 20-year-old, I'm coming back as a 90-year-old. Most people in that generation have died out. The generation that this message is given to don't even remember what Jerusalem looks like. They'd grown so comfortable in living with the worldview of their surroundings that this news from Cyrus must have felt like, oh my goodness, what are you asking us to do? They'd become more Assyrian than Israelite. The danger is for us, we can become more Western, contemporary, post-Christian than we can be actually Christian. See, God's heart isn't for you that you get stuck in the Babylon of our culture. But instead, he invites you to step into his purposes for you. And it's a purpose that you can encounter the presence of God. So, look, this is a kind of start to the series, okay? We are going to be speaking about this all term. We're going to speak about how and why and if and all those kinds of things. In two weeks' time, I'm going to be speaking again. I'm going to give us a bit of a vision for the church over this year ahead. But I want to set our stall out today with this. that, That God's inviting you to come and partner with him in encountering him. He wants you to know him. And so how could you do that this week? If you were just going to step into this in, in, in any way. Well, you need to make space for your life, in your life to personally engage with God. If all of your relationship with God just looks like reading the Bible and closing it straight away and not giving God any time to speak through his word to you, then you are, you're missing something. Make space for him. Make space for him in your life this week. Purposely put some time aside. The Netflix series that you're watching can wait another day. The new series of Star Wars on Disney, it's not great, but it can wait another day. It can wait. I'm not saying don't watch it, it's cool. But God is cooler. Yeah, his purposes are greater. His presence is greater. Make time for him this week. And secondly, this as well. Take responsibility. Don't just entrust others to the responsibility of, of our community, of saying, well, actually, we're going to seek the presence. It's all right. I won't go to the prayer meeting because I know that there are people there who are seeking God's presence. I won't bother going. I've got, I got too much on. Why not take response? Why not step into it and say, look, I want to take responsibility too because I want to be part of this. God's purpose for my life isn't that I'm just doing my own thing and making a name for myself. God's purpose for my life is that I make a name for him. So as we close today, I just want to give a moment. I know I realize that time has moved on. I want to just give a moment just to pray for you as we finish today. I'm aware that, that um, Fran prayed some, uh, said some stuff earlier on as well, just about people where people might be out in a valley-like season. I just want to pray for you this morning because God's heart for you is that you step into his purposes, that you don't get caught in the valley, but that he leads you through it. So let's just pray for you as we close with you this morning. You know, a great way to receive from God, just to say, God, my heart's open. It's just to place your hands out. It's a really easy way of just saying, God, I just want to receive from you. It's just a visible sign of what your heart's telling you. You might want to do that as we just close this morning. Lord, I thank you for the history that we find in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you that ultimately, Jesus, it always leads to you. It leads to your name. And Jesus, I just pray this morning for my brothers and sisters here. 
Lord, that they turn away from any worthless idols that they might have in their lives and just turn their hearts again towards the living God. Lord, I pray, Lord God, for each one of us, Lord God, where, Lord God, maybe we've given ourselves over to a Cyrus-like mentality of thinking, God, you are all about just making us happy. Lord, I pray that once again we might turn to you and find the one who is about his purposes in us and through us. And Lord Jesus, I pray for us, Lord God, that you might just come and just fill us with your presence right now. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you that it says where two or three are gathered, the spirit of Jesus is with them. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you come and touch minds and touch lives right now. Lord, I thank you that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, there is an opportunity to come and delight in God. Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now. Come and touch hearts right now. I always get a sense when I, whenever I pray like this, the first thing that I always feel God always wants to remind us of is that he's your father and that he loves you, that he's called you, that he's proud of you, not because of anything that you've done, just because he loves you. And there's an invitation in everything I've said this morning to come on a journey with the father. Just know the delight of God over your life right now. Whatever you're walking through, hear me when I say God says to you, I love you. I love you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that's just wanting to respond to what Fran brought earlier on. Anyone this morning who, like Pete and Fran, are walking through a tough season at the moment, as she, as she shared earlier on. Lord, we pray for them right now. Thank you that you are the God of all comfort. But also thank you, God, that you are about your purposes in us and through us. And so, Lord, we pray for anyone in that situation today, Lord, that as they step into your purposes this week, Lord, that they might know, Lord God, the situations that they're in, Lord God, change before their eyes. Lord, we thank you that you led the Israelites and, and the situations they encountered changed because you did it. And so, Lord, we pray for each one of us this week we'd encounter you moving and working, Lord God, for your purposes amongst us. Amen. 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 Well, um, reminder that to come back for half one, we're going to, just so you know as well, um, we're going to put some seating and tables.